Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Have you ever wondered what those bright squiggly graffiti marks on the sidewalk mean or stopped to ponder who gets to name the streets we walk along or what the story is behind those dancing inflatable figures in car dealerships plus so much more. Well, this is what my guest today, Roman Mars, talks about in his New York Times bestselling book, The 99% Invisible City, which is honestly a great read. I highly encourage you guys to go and pick up a copy and read it. Trust me, it is filled with stuff that you had no idea about that, trust me, make a lot of sense when you read the book. But my guest today, Roman Mars, is the host and creator of 99% Invisible, a sound-rich narrative podcast about the unnoticed architecture and design that shape our world with approximately 500 million downloads, the 99% Invisible podcast is one of the most popular podcasts in the world. Fast Company named him one of the, the 100 most creative people in 2013. He was a TED main stage speaker in 2015. It is currently the most popular TED talk about design with over 6.5 million views to date. His crowdfunding campaigns have raised over 4 million and he's the highest funded journalist in Kickstarter history, believe it or not. He's also the co-founder of Radiotopia, a collective of groundbreaking independent podcasts. And most recently, he co-authored the 99% Invisible City book, which is a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design, which is a beautifully designed and illustrated New York Times best-selling book about our built world. So how about that? Um, this was... This conversation I had with Roman a little while ago, last year in fact, but I wanted to release it because it is quite fascinating and I think you're going to love Roman's story and why he decided to do uh, the things that he does today and why he decided to write The 99% Invisible City. So if you haven't uh, got a copy of the book yet, go out and grab a copy. You won't regret it. Trust me on that. 
Um, so my friends, if you do get something from this conversation as well, please do share it around with all your friends and family. Let everyone know about this one. Also, my friends, I want to let you know that I have partnered up with Mary Ruth Organics. Mary Ruth is an amazing human being, a good friend of mine, and I am so grateful that she has trusted me with to team up with her brand uh, to bring you guys an amazing offer to help boost your health uh, overall. So Mary Ruth Organics has a series of products on there to help boost your immunity, boost your cognitive levels, boost your daily function as, as a whole. So some of my favorite products that I have mentioned before, the immune booster gummies, as well as vitamin C. I also use the ultra digestive enzymes on there, which help to support and aid my own level of digestion. So if you do want to improve your health overall, and you are looking for uh, some products that are organic, they're healthy, and they work wonders for your body, then I highly recommend that you go to maryruthorganics.com and at the checkout, use code J15, that is J-A-Y 15 at the end for 15% off your order. And I say, go wild there, my friends, honestly, because if we don't have our health, we have nothing. And Mary Ruth has worked for many, many years to help others uh, improve their own health with these incredible products. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into this story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Roman Mars. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. That was a, um, I should be a radio announcer, should I, with the introductions? <laughs> I felt good about that one. <laughs> good. You did great. There was a lot to say there. Thank you, Roman, for, for taking the time. Um, the more research that I was doing about you, the more excited I became with actually wanting to speak to you and unbox your story a little bit. Before we do that, I normally have a question that I start off with that I love asking all my guests, which is what does success look like to you? I think these days success means um, having a choice. You know, like I felt like I worked, you know, I had a full-time job uh, and worked almost every day of my life since I was 14 years old. And, uh, and, it, and there are moments where it was really hard and there are moments where it was really joyful, um, but only recently have I gotten to the point where I wanted to organize my life so that uh, working and what I wanted to do was was always a choice rather than something that I felt like I had to do. When was the moment for you that you realized that, hey, success for me is having a choice to do what I want to do? Was it a gradual thing over time? I think I'm still in the middle of it, honestly, because <laughs> like, because what happens to you, like, as you, you know, I've been an independent media producer for a really long time. And uh, in the beginning, you're independent, at least in my, in my situation, I was independent because like nobody wanted me, like I couldn't get a normal job, I had to do it on my own. And then, um, and then you sort of take some pride and you sort of build yourself up and your identity is based around that independence. And then as you grow, you have employees, you have people who depend on you and people who you have to provide for, and you're no longer independent. You're interdependent with them. And that type of relationship is, is, uh, is really important and it, and it takes a lot out of you and you're not alone in the process of it. It's, it's really, it's really hard, but you still, you don't have a boss. So and that in and of itself is, is, is pretty great. Um, but it changes your dynamic. I mean, now I work to keep uh, a bunch of people employed and not just myself. And so 
you know, so I'm always kind of looking for, you know, getting enough ahead or figuring out how I'm going to do things so that everyone has the time and space to be the best sort of creative worker that they can be. And, uh, and what I'm trying to do that is, is at, at this point, like as you're building a business, um, usually like I'm the last person who gets to do everything I want in terms of like the show. And cause I have to do dumb things. I have to have dumb meetings. <laughs> like I have to, I have to do lots of things related to just keeping the thing going, which is not my ultimate dream. But um, as I see more and more of it developing, I'm just trying to find more space for all of us, including myself to, to, to get the most out of the show and, and make things and, and be free and clear and, and be happy. You know? How did the show actually begin? So I was, you know, I worked in public radio uh, in the States for uh, you know, about 10 years. And I was working at a radio station called KALW in San Francisco, um, helping the launch of their news department and also working on a public radio show called Snap Judgment, which is still around today. It was a very good show. And, um, and the general manager of KLW, it's a fellow named Matt Martin. Uh, he and one of the, the executive director of the local chapter of the American Institute of Architects had, had this idea that, you know, maybe there was a, you know, like a little story that they could tell every week on the radio that was an architecture minute, something about, um, you know, a local building in San Francisco. And, and you know, he just brought me in and said, like, what do you think of that? You know, I created a lot of radio stories at that, or radio programs, even at that point, I'd worked a long time. And, um, and I was intrigued by this. I always loved architecture. I always loved design. And so, you know, I began to sort of ruminate on this and sort of try different things out. And, and, and it was, and the show started as a four minute drop-in segment that played during morning edition, which is this, you know, giant radio program that goes coast to coast here in the U S and, and at the same time, you know, like podcasting was, was, um, was growing, you know, it always kind of grew. Um, but it had these different moments where people really cared about it. It, it, it premiered on the scene in 2005 and it was going to overtake radio and it totally did not. And then it kind of went out of people's consciousness for a while and it was sort of reaching a little bit more of its ascendancy before the moment when like serial came in and really broke it into popular consciousness in a big way. And I released it, I began releasing these four minute segments as a podcast and they really did find an audience. And, and then all of a sudden I started to realize that I was making the show for the podcast first and the radio second. And, and that there was a weird moment in there and, and, and there was enough of an audience to, to sustain it and to like um, pay for it and do these Kickstarters and, and, you know, that was the the real turning point was when I connected with the audience and they began to support the show financially. And I realized that I could do this and I could hire someone. And it was like a real job. Mm. So what was the show actually about? Like, what were you talking about uh, from the majority of the show? Yeah, I mean, so it started out with this idea would just be about architecture and, and design. And so like big and little things. So like the first, you know, few episodes are about, um, uh, the Transamerica Pyramid, which is like the, one of the most iconic buildings in San Francisco. Uh, it was about the design of toothbrushes. It was about the design of flags, um, all, all kinds of things that um, I was really interested in and trying to use, you know, broader lessons of design through specific examples and, 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 and sort of play with the idea of, you know, talking about design on a podcast from radio is a, is a weird perversity, you know, because it's, 
it's usually we talk about these things and take them in visually. And I wanted the conversation of design to be about problem solving and, and storytelling. And um, when you took away the visual element, I realized it was really fun to talk about design in a different way. And we could kind of like almost kind of own that space, like own the way that we talked about design rather than design being about pretty pictures or something that you you know saw on the web. And um, it connected with the audience you know, pretty you know, pretty immediately, you know, like it, it, there was a sort of something in the air, I think, from, you know, people being online and finding each other and arguing about the fonts on movie posters. And, you know, like there was a way that people were talking about design in a different way that I hadn't seen before growing up or anything like that. Like I didn't even know what a font was. I mean, I think computers just changed the way we interact with the concept of design. And we know like how a good website works. And we didn't really know that before. And even though a book is just as much of a designed object as a website, you know, we don't really think of a book as a being designed any other way, but we do recognize differentiation, sort of differentiation when it comes to, you know, digital things. And I think it made people more design aware, more interested in stories about design and problem solving. And so, you know, the, 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 the show was always very broad because I, I, I kind of made the show for me. Like I wanted it as a, as a way to tell stories I wanted to. So I needed it to be broad so I could continue doing it for 10 years and be interested in it, but just focused enough that um, it gave me a lens to, you know, just to, so it isn't just like, here's a show about stories that I like. <laughs> like being about design means that I just cover anything in the human built world. It really can be anything. Mm -hmm. um, and we center on cities and we center on like a lot of things that you think of, but, but really like we'll do the, you know, the design of, you know, political systems or like the, the history of the song "Who Let the Dogs Out." <laughs> you know, like we'll do, we'll do it kind of about anything that that a human is involved in the creation of. I'm curious about the story element and how design and story actually meet together, and how they're so fascinating. What have you noticed about, or what have you learned about design and story being so combined, and how have you been able to keep things interesting? on your show? How do you able to draw in listeners? I mean, the first part of the reason why I thought design and storytelling work together is that, you know, design is a process. There's like a problem that needs to be solved and then a solution to that problem. And that process, you put it in order and it's a story and you add like reflection and you add music and you know, like, oh, that feels like a story, you know? And so there's always that there. If it's the design process you're talking about, it's the story, then that's it. But the other part of it is like the show is all about is about decoding the built world in a, in a way. And so it's about recognizing that um, the mundane and kind of normal, boring, everyday things have interesting stories behind them. And they're just, it just so happens that the objects are so dull and everyday that you don't tend to notice them. And so I always thought that the, the fun of the show was that delta between um, how boring the object seemed and how interesting I could, how interested I could make you in it, you know? And so that was the fun part of the show and why you can do it for 10 years is because that challenge is super enjoyable and, and it changes all the time. And so the show has a little bit of a, of a the nature of it is, is that it, it helps you decode the world in an interesting way. So even if I'm talking about a traffic light in Syracuse, New York, that has a particular history that's odd because it, you know, the green is above the red because of the Irish immigrants who live in the neighborhood. 
don't want to see a red unionist cover over a green uh, republic cover. You know, I tell you that story, and even though that is not the traffic light that probably exists in you know your town, it makes you more interested in the traffic light that is. And you're like, and then you begin to think, well, actually, why is red over green all the time? I don't even, I don't. Why is that? You know, and it, and it sort of makes the world a little bit more interesting and curious. And then you can use that that toolkit to you know, have the world be a little more lively where you are. And I think that's usually what connects people to the stories in general. What is your, what do you love the most about stories first and foremost? And secondly, um, is there a favorite story that you could share out of all the stories? That, <laughs> I know it's probably a hard one to answer, but more or less it gave you a renewed perspective on life, on that story. Um, what is it about stories? I mean, stories are just, they're just fundamental. You know, like I listen to, I listen to audio all day long. Like I'm not just a creator of this stuff. I'm like, I'm the biggest consumer of it, that of anyone I know. I love the feeling of a good story. I love the way it pulls you. I love the way that you can't, you know, stop it. That you are, are pulled to it, like to come, you have to come back to it. Um, I, you know, I have little categories for where different ones go. Like I listen to, I listen to fiction when I run, I listen to podcasts most of the time, but often when I'm stopping and starting and sort of puttering around the house, you know, cause I often like, I just have earphones in all the time. And so, um, I mean, I just don't even know like how to think otherwise. And if it isn't in terms of stories, in terms of the show, you know, like or the stories I've told, you know, one of the things that's so good about the um, the podcast now is that post to when it started. So it started, it was like my fourth job. I was working on a million different shows and projects and stuff. And I just did it as a side project at night. And now you have 13 people work on the show. And so one of the things that's amazing about it is that is that I get to be a fan of my show the way I wasn't before. Because, you know, you can't. Like you make things, like you you just hear the mistakes. You just you know you're like I don't want to listen to myself all the time. But like when somebody's like bringing you stories, um, and I'm a huge fan of everyone who works on the show, like I, I just love it in a new way, and that, that I never did in the beginning. And so, um, so truly, what what ends up happening is like, you know, this week I, I had a really hard week, um, and. Katie Mingle who works on my show. She she's working on a series. She's been reporting a series on homelessness for almost two years. It's been it's been a lot of her time. It's been a lot of work to keep it funded. It's you know all, all kinds of things have been hard about that thing. But like I listened to the early cut of it, and we'll, we're doing edits right now. And really, it's like it's like my favorite thing we've ever made. Like, and I had nothing to do with it. That's I mean that's what's creating a space where like people who work for you, who are better than you to do things that are that good. And like, you kind of helped it happen. That's the most satisfying thing in the world. And, and so like, I had a, I had a really rough day and, and I just wasn't a, when I have a good edit on a rough day, like that's the best thing to pull me out of a mood. And when I hear a story like that and I just think, Oh my God, I can't believe like we made this. <laughs> like, and it was, you know, it's just, and, and so that, you know, so, that was the best thing I had uh, recently. And, I, and I'd say like, 
you know, the stories that, that change my perspective. I mean, I think one of the ones that I'm known for, and you know, it's not really much of a story story, but um, I've been kind of like interested in flags for a long time. And that's what I did the Ted talk about. And, and really that's, that's one of the ones that was the first that connect with an audience in, a, in an interesting way. And it was because I was, um, I lived in Chicago for a while and Chicago has this really prominent city flag. And, and it, before I moved there, I didn't realize cities had flags at all. <laughs> and, uh, and so I kind of went on this sort of search of like, well, why, why have I never seen a city flag before? What is that about? And, uh, and that led to the, the Ted talk about it because, um, as I began to examine the city flags of the world, I realized that most of them were God awful. And the reason why nobody flies them is because they're too ugly to fly. And, uh, and it led to me doing this TED talk about it. And, and that led to over 200 redesigns of city flags around the world. And that to me is just like this amazingly strange thing that I did based off this tiny obsession that I had way back when I finally turned into a radio story years and years later and then turn into a TED talk and then turn into this weird movement that I had no idea would start. You know, that TED talk about flags kind of reminds me of Big Bang Theory when Sheldon Cooper's got that show, Fun With Flags. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, what's so funny about that is I'd never seen that before. And uh, it wasn't until after I even did the TED talk, even well after that, that I'd heard anything about that. I'd never seen the show, but uh, it's, but I've seen the clips of it since then. And it's, it's, delightful like i think it's so it's so funny to me that they decided to make you know somebody who's like a i think he's like a physics nerd or something like that like really into flags it's it's a it's a strange combination of choices but but to me like great it's a super nerdy subject but i totally enjoy it what um i'm curious about what makes a good flag as opposed to a great flag as opposed to just a, a terrible flag just out of curiosity yeah a good ones usually there's a, there's some rules. So, the, so the, 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 the basis of the story was an interview that I did with this fellow named Ted Kay, who is not a designer. He's just a flag lover. And much like the sort of you know, music theory, which is not, you know, it was sort of like a, a theory based on how we like to perceive music in the Western world based off of what classical composers did. Like it wasn't like an idea they had and then they made it. We kind of took what they did and we sort of turned it into theory. He kind of took all the, the good and effective flags of the world. And he began to sort of boil it down into these design principles. Um, and they, the design principles are that it uses two or three basic colors from the sort of standard cover, color set. It doesn't have any words. Um, it can be, you know, you know, proceed, it can be drawn, it's simple enough to be drawn by, by a child from, from memory. Um, they're usually distinctive or, or similar for good reasons. So, so if you can imagine like the Nordic crosses of, of all the Scandinavian countries, they're all, you know, these offset crosses, but they're, but they're all different colors. So, you know, like even though there are, there are many of the same, they, they kind of fit together. And I think I'm, there's one more, but I can't do it off the top of my head. Um, so, so those are the things that make a, a good flag. It, 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 and, the, and the main thing that you need to keep in mind is that Flags are, are seen from a distance, flapping in the wind from both sides. So whatever you would design, you have to design to keep that in mind. That's the use case for it. So instead of making something really complex, which is pretty common to put like a, a city seal or a crest or something on a flag, um, it's, it's, it's meant for being on paper. It's meant to be on big things. It's really not meant to be on a flag. Uh, 
that's often the default flag and 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 that's why they're often so bad and so so to design a good flag i i recommend drawing a one by one and a half inch you know rectangle on a piece of paper and designing it in that space because most likely that that's about as big as you see it you know from 200 yards away um and so a good flag you know it doesn't have writing it doesn't have um it doesn't have offensive symbols of course it it, it you know it has basic colors it's it can be drawn from memory it's simple um and what makes a great one is 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 a strange and it's a, it's a good question because uh then after that it's kind of like what symbols and and what sort of combinations work on you and one of the things that's that's fascinating is that i did this follow-up blog post for for ted about um flags that break some of those basic principles but are still really really great and I think often like a careful breaking of those rules um, makes for a great flag sometimes, you know, like uh, one that's like Zelenkorsk, I think is the name of it. Is this like secret town, long secret town in, in Russia. It's from the Soviet days where they, they it was a nuclear reactor. They, they, they sort of like refined plutonium or something and their flag I have a copy. I have one of a. I have one of them in my collection. But is a is a bear ripping apart an atom, which is like the best flag in the world. And uh, it's probably too complex for a child to draw from memory. You know, it's. Um, but it's so cool that um, you got to love it anyway. So so uh, a great flag is one that just hits you really well, and you would really enjoy it. You know, and uh, and so I still think that my favorite one is probably the city of Chicago flag, which sort of awakened me to all this in the beginning. It's just the one that has the best sort of associations with me and, and got me going. That was going to be my next question, but you answered it for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got there anyway. So, um, Roman, I want to, I want to ask you or move the conversation forward a little bit about your writing and your new book, uh, the 99% invisible city. Where, what inspired you to write that book? What is, what is that book really about for those people that want to know? Sure. So the book is this, you know, it uses some of the tropes of a field guide. It's a, it's a collection of stories about the objects you would see in a city. And so the, the joke of it is, uh, rather than one of these travel guides to like, oh, I'm going to go to Sydney. Here's the travel guide to Sydney. It's like, oh, I'm going to a city. Here's the field guide to the city, like any city. And it kind of is a field guide to any and every city. It tells the most interesting stories that we can find of, of everyday objects and, and designs. And, um, you know, the main reason why it was, you know, like I, I love, I love doing a podcast. I love telling stories in audio. Um, writing a book was not natural or, or easy. Uh, but, um, Kurt Kolstad, who's the co-author is the digital director of 99% Invisible, and he writes a lot of the web articles for our show. And, you know, it was really him pushing it forward, you know, like in a lot of ways, like he, he had this, he, he brought up the concept of, of like doing a, a field guide at some point. And, uh, and, and there was just sort of a, a need for the information to sort of get out in another form. So like the book is like half of it is some stuff that might have some precedent on the show and half of it is, com is completely new. And, um, and, but what I realized is like, so like we have, 
one of my favorite episodes is this episode about curb cuts and curb cuts. So there's little ramps at the edge of sidewalks, which allow, you know, wheelchair users to, 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 to use the sidewalk and be accessible and pass over the street. And um, those have a history here in Berkeley, California, where I live. Uh, there was a, a Cal student named Ed Roberts, who was the first uh, quadriplegic who was admitted to UC Berkeley. And he was an activist and he and a group of people called the Rolling Quads um, used to take a sledgehammer to the edges of sidewalks and break them apart and then pour cement and make a little ramp. And they didn't do this a lot, but it was like this, it was this thing of, it was a, it was like a, a symbol of their activism. It was like a, it was like a physical symbol of their activism. And it didn't make the whole like campus accessible through this method. They just, what they did is raise awareness that, oh yeah, you know, we need to do this. And this type of activism led to the reason why there are, um, there are curb cuts um, all over this country and led, led to the American with Disabilities Act that was uh, signed in the nineties. And, and so I, we tell this story on the show, you know, that, that story on the show takes 30 minutes to listen to. You know, it's like locked in this linear format where I start the story and I finish the story and that's the story. Um, and there was so much, there was like 10 years of stories like this on the show locked into this linear format that maybe you'd go back and listen to the, the podcast of, maybe you wouldn't. And I just wanted it broken open and able to peruse and pick a story that you wanted to read and like, and have a reference, it just felt like, it just felt like the information was like tied up in this like, you know, like this genie bottle or something. And I wanted to release it in this new way so that you could navigate it um, and explore it. And that's what the 99% of Visible City is. It's just, it's this guide to all the interesting stories about the everyday things in every city in the world. And we use examples from all over the world to tell these stories. Um, and it was super fun to put together. It was super hard. I, I, I cannot tell you how hard it was. <laughs> like, I mean, like a person who writes a book will, will tell you that the hardest thing to do is, is to write a book and have this three-year-long deadline to do a thing. But what's harder than that is to have this three-year-long deadline alongside this weekly deadline to put out a very intensive, uh, you know, documentary podcast every week. And so I could always occupy myself with the podcast when I needed to be writing. And so uh, if it wasn't for Kurt, just like really project managing and pushing and writing and doing all this stuff, uh, the thing would have never been done. You know, it's just, it was impossible, but it was, that's the reason why it just felt like it felt a need for it at a certain point, like that we weren't serving the stories as well as a collection of 400 podcasts, like it needed to get out. I, I can relate to you and how hard it actually is to write a book because yeah. I'm writing one at the moment and I stupidly decided to write two in the <laughs> process of writing one and I, I suck at grammar. So I'm like, I'm getting all this information out here on the page, all the contents there. It's great. And then I reread it stupidly and mm -hmm. then I notice, oh, well, crap, the grammar is shocking. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the thing it's going to depend on your style, but like, I really recommend you just write and not pay attention to the grammar for a little while. And then you have a, you know, like you have an editor and you have people that you trust to help clean it up because, um, yeah, we are the same situation. I, you know, like with, uh, Kurt was much, I, I write for the air. Like I write, uh, incomplete sentences 
uh, I write with kind of ellipses, you know, like instead of like actual sentences, like when you write radio scripts, they're, they're really, really different. Like, for example, saying really, really in a row like that was something you never do in a book, but that's something you do when you talk. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he was, he really crafted it into a prose that could be readable. And then our editor, uh, Kate Napolitano, it's like, you just need a team of people because writing a book is not a natural exercise for any human being as far as I'm concerned. It's a fun process, but it's also a very difficult one. And oh, it's so, so hard. Like when, so you, hard. when you finished the book, how was the feeling? What were you feeling when you, when you finished? You know, everything was like, was so hectic and I always had another deadline and I always had something to do that it never felt like anything. Like the moment it felt done was, um, I was, I was sitting here and the book had already been, um, I'd gotten the first like hard copies of the book and, uh, and I was, it was across the table from me and I was like, that thing's beautiful. Like I like it. And, and it took me time because at the, in the beginning, like I, I was sending it to, some, I have some friends and colleagues who, who write books and are famous. And one of the things you have to do when you write a book is you have to like send it to them and ask them to write good things about it. So, so it sells, you know, <laughs> and, and like, I remember writing them. I was, I wrote uh, John Green, the, the author um, of like Fault in Our Stars. And he, he's a pretty famous um, um, young adult author. And, uh, and I knew he was a fan of the show and, and, and we're friendly and, uh, and I, when I wrote him about it, I just said, uh, well, I know it got a star review in Kirkus, but um, other than that, I can't tell you if it's good or bad. But if you could check it out, I'd appreciate it. You know, like you just have no concept of it. And, and, and my guess for you is when you're done writing your book, uh, you will have no idea if it's good or bad in any way, shape or form. And it'll take you like a really long time to get a sense of it and other people's feedback and stuff like that. Um, but as I was putting it, it took me until it was really done to sort of get the sense of it and realize that people were into it and it was working. And then I had to read the audiobook, you know, and that, that actually helped me again, like see, like have it all together and go like, Oh, okay, this is working. I can see how this is working. But they, at no point in the process, do you feel confident? That's the thing. Like you, you don't really feel good. You don't really feel done because like in addition to writing a book, there's like the project management of putting a book out is really complicated. It's like a lot of just emails and, and compromises and nonsense and, 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 and you're like, and, and you're so nervous about its reception and, you know, and I had a big job of trying to sell the book, you know, like I'm not, you know, like next to us in the bestseller list was the premiere of the Jerry Seinfeld book, you know, like I'm not Jerry Seinfeld, you know, so it's like, so like you have to work really hard to do that. And so like that, so there's like, it's just a job too. So it never really felt done. Um, so I don't know if I ever felt that like sort of victory lap thing. So I don't know if, I don't know if that's in the, in the offing. I, I think all authors kind of feel that way because there's, there's always another job that's after the, the writing job. I mean, I don't think I've ever felt, I guess, content with what I'm writing. So I mean, I've, I've felt excited about it and I've, I know that it's going to help one person. But what I'm what I'm writing about is literally my story and what I've been through uh, over the last 24 years, and it's kind of like in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, who who the hell's going to read this? Like, <laughs> why, why is my story any? Why is my story great? Like, 
But then, then again, I just go back to why I'm doing it in the first place. Everything that I'm doing, everything that I'm putting out there, even with this podcast, like why would anyone want to listen to me um, or any of the guests that I have on? And it's purely because I want to help people with stories. Mm-hmm. And literally this book that I'm writing, I call it The Path of an Eagle. And the eagle is like my spirit animal. And I've based the book off moments, a few moments in my life that have sort of challenged me, given me perspective, have sort of just been crazy in, in, a, in many sense. Um, like it's a very hard read. <laughs> like, let me just say that, like for a lot of people um, to read what I've, what I've been through, I think they're going to, it's going to be difficult in, in many sense, but I want to do it because I want people to see that, Hey, I'm still here. I'm still going. And you can too. Like there's nothing out there that is impossible, like to not overcome. It just takes time. It takes work. And and here's how the lessons that I've learned along the way. But I guess going back to you, Roman, and your book, why did you decide to call it the 99% and not the 100%? <laughs> well, it's just the, the name. I mean, it's the name of the show. So like 90, 99% Invisible is the name of the podcast. And so it was always going to have something in it that was 99% Invisible. The reason why I called it 99% Invisible was I thought, uh, I thought it was evocative and interesting. And I, I knew that the thing was going to be about design. And I knew... The, the conceit is that the design process and the interesting thing behind an object is, is this huge 99% invisible thing. It's, and, and I think the same thing about people. It's like, you could just as much call your story that you're writing right now, 99% invisible. Like you represent 1% of the, you know, you as your, your physical form, you know, like your, you know, it's your corpus that's sitting in front of me right now is like 1% of the story. The 99% invisible part is the thing that you're writing. And, and that to me was the evocative like part of the, of the title was that the world is so much bigger than we can see. And, and it just to me felt like that meant that I could do the show about anything I wanted. <laughs> so that's going to be the secret. Of the cool title. I like it. Yeah. Um, couple more questions for you if you don't mind no 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 go ahead over over your career and everything like that what would you say has been the worst piece of advice you've ever received (laughs) worst Hmm. i don't know i i I didn't have a lot of mentors honestly and it's it's hmm Yeah, I have to. I I don't know if I'm gonna I'm gonna have a good answer for you there. I have the things that I came up with on my own, um, but one one of the things that happened to me was that my career, in the sort of like the official sense of my career, like getting a job in radio where you had a boss and you were told to do things and you got a paycheck, that was an abject failure. Like I had a very bad career in that sense and hitting against that wall such that I had to create my own show and do things for myself 
um, was fundamental to where I am today. And so I don't know if anyone, I mean, it wasn't so much bad advice, but like if any one of those people hired me early on, um, I wouldn't be where I am today. I would be probably a decently respected radio producer at a station and it would be okay. Um, uh, so, so maybe it was sort of the overall advice that I had to go through that system, you know, that I had to do an internship and had to be an assistant producer and had to, rather than just make my own show. Um, it was that over, you know, that, that the pressure to do that was a thing that did not serve me. And also I just was a failure at it. One, It wasn't like I just thumbed my nose at the system. The system was not interested in me. And so that's why I created the thing that I did. Um, so yeah, I, I recommend that. And, and so if I could pivot that into like a piece of advice that I give people now related to that is given between two choices, um, always pick the more interesting path, not the one with the most money, not the one with the easiest, not the one that sort of even gets you the most, just pick the more interesting one. And it almost always pays off. I'm a big believer in that. I'd have to um, agree with you on that. <laughs> I was the same way. Like I did so many different jobs, so many different like people. I was never happy, never satisfied. I mean, I did an excellent job in every single, yeah. like everything I was given. I did it, did it to an excellent spirit. Even last year I was in real estate and I thought that was going to be my career for the rest of my life. And it's interesting looking back now at all the things that I learned back then have helped me doing this. But back then I wasn't as fulfilled or satisfied as I am now. And yeah. even though like it is a very difficult thing running your own business, it is challenging. It, For sure. There's a lot more fear to it because then it's you and it's all you, not somebody else you're holding the crutch to. It's like not a crutch, sorry. Um, like, but that's exciting that yeah. I wouldn't have it any other way, to be honest. Yeah. You're building it for you and for others. Like, yeah. it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> I, I agree. I'm glad you're going through that phase of it where you feel that way. I mean, I, mean, I think it's like, that's the overwhelming feeling. I mean, like owning all of it is, is as you said, is super hard. Like realizing that it's like, it's on you. It's, it's your fault. It's your glory too. And, and you get, and you also... I don't know. It just feels better. Like I, I haven't had a boss in so long. I don't even know what it feels like. Um, and so, so I think you made the right choice, you know, like, and the fact that you, you know, like you just sort of like for the most part, I feel like independent of all the other rewards that come with working a job. Um, you just like, if you, if you work with people, if you look to your left and look to your right and you're like, oh, I like these people, then you're in a good place. And if you like, if the parts of your day, like this, like I love interviewing and talking to people and, and I get to do this every day, you know, that's pretty good. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and, and I also need it. Like I, I personally, like I'm a pretty shy person. I'm a pretty solitary person. And um, if I didn't have, an excuse and a, you know, like a, a reason, a job talking to people, I could easily go like a couple of weeks without talking to a human. And so, um, it's really important to me in my life to have something like this in it, um, because it helps me take in the world when I can really close myself off to it. Mm. And so 
I also think that that is a huge part of what makes um, careers satisfying and they work is like, I made 99% invisible because, you know, I'd been a producer behind the scenes for a long time. I'd been a host before. I'd done various things, but I made this show for me to work on the things I wanted to work on, to become an, you know, to, to show off talents that I thought I was good at. But a lot of it was just like, I wanted to work on writing. I wanted to work on hosting. I wanted to do these things. And it gave me a platform to do those things. And so, you know, like the, the best jobs in the world are the ones that um, are helping you work stuff out. You know what I mean? That are like, and, and it's super good. So like, I, and congratulations. I think it's great that you're not in real estate. <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy that I'm not in there too, <laughs> to be honest with you, because I never thought in my wildest dreams, even last year when I started it, the amazing thing is we're coming on one year of the story box next week, which is, I'm pretty proud of. And the amount yeah. of, the amount of people that I've been able to interview in such a short period of time, over 350 in a year. Whoa, and oh God. I know it's been, it's been crazy. <laughs> like what? the level of conversations as well. Like I'm, I'm an introverted person myself. Yeah, yeah. Like, and it's interesting. I, I la- almost laugh at it, how an introvert is able to speak to people and ask questions and keep a conversation going and make, try and make it interesting for people. I've always like found that fascinating. Like, but it's universal though. Like every reporter I've ever known has been an introvert and they basically have engineered their lives to make it so that they talk to people because they want to, like part of them wants to, but part of them finds it hard and draining and, and having it be your job and having it be like a little bit of a task and also like a little bit of like, you just need enough of a reason to get over yourself and over your shyness. Mm-hmm. And, um, and having, you know, reporting a story is a perfect reason to do it. You know, like I, I get to talk to, you know, really, really fascinating people. I, I'm not super into like my show has never been about famous people. Like we never talk to famous designers or architects if they're, you know, there aren't that many of them, but they're, they're, they're there. And, um, yeah, uh, I just like talking to interesting people and people who solve problems and, and people who are passionate about things. I'm, and, and I get, I get to do that, uh, all the time. And, and when I don't do it, someone on my team does, and I get to hear the results of that. And, and so it's, it's, it's funny. Like I totally understand the irony of being an introverted person and talking to people and enjoying it and having that be your job. But even though it is an irony, uh, it's to- it's universal. I swear, I've never met an outgoing radio reporter. They're all like completely uh, just they they would live in a tiny box if they could. You know? yeah. <laughs> they just but they did something to to put themselves out there, and and this is a good reason to put yourself out there. And I'm not afraid to fail either. Like I've had looking back at all the the very first conversations I had with people, like right. how I navigated the conversation then as opposed to what I do now it's all a learning experience like and I learned in those bad moments the bad questions that I asked you know the bad like terrible conversations where I couldn't actually get mm-hmm. anywhere with anyone it's like drawing blood from a stone it was almost yeah. it seemed impossible but then I learned hang on a minute maybe I gotta take a new angle here maybe I gotta yeah. go down this road and it just got me thinking a lot more and I'm, I'm naturally curious. So 
being that way inclined, it, just, it helped a lot, a lot more. And, you know, the amazing thing is Storybox at the moment isn't making any money. The goal mm-hmm. was never to actually make any money. It was to change lives. I don't do this for, for me. I do this for others. And mm-hmm. I, I make that um, almost like a selfless uh, motivation in many, yeah. many different ways, but it's selfish to me because I get to interview them. <laughs> I get to interview right. them. Right. I mean, so I, I think that that's, I think it's great. I think it's a fine way to think about it, but I would challenge you to think about it in, in a different way too, which is, um, you know, be your first audience, like do make it for you, make it and hold it to a standard that you would want to listen to. And, um, and, and make sure it's worth your time. You know, like, even though you think of it as a service, like I serve my audience too. Like I have a connection with them and I have a contract with them in a, in a way that what I, the type of information I provide, the type of journalism that I provide, but, you know, I make the show I want to make, you know, and that's, that's the only way I know that I am doing it for them. It's like, it, that it's good enough for them is to know that it satisfies me. So, um, it's, I think it's important to balance those two things personally. I think you're right. I do appreciate you telling me that. I love challenges. <laughs> one, one person that challenged me in the very beginning was Evan Carmichael. I don't know if you know Evan Carmichael. No, I don't. He challenged me to, I was only putting out one episode a week back then. And I had so many interviews already done and I wasn't keeping up with the man. And he's like, why the hell are you only putting out one <laughs> a week? And he challenged me to put out two and he said, just get the content out there. So then I, I put out, started putting out two, it was extra work, extra effort, but I did it. And I noticed the audience started growing. More people started following along. And I'm like, this is great. Now I'm going to do three. So now I've done since I think it was a couple months now, three episodes a week, which is a lot of content, a lot sure. of work, plus all the other stuff that I'm doing at the same time. But I don't see it as as a task. I see it as a joy, and I'm blessed to actually do it. Um, mm. And I love doing it. Like honestly, I love it. Um, and I'm passionate about stories. I'm passionate about unboxing them. And mm. like I've like I've hopefully done today with with your story a little bit. I feel like there's so much more that I could actually dive into and unbox if we had more time. Um, my I want to say thank you, Roman, for everything that you're doing um, and putting out there into the world. You're authentically you. And I think that's sort of missed in a lot of people, sadly, these days. So thank you for that. My, my last question for you, this is my, my favorite question that I ask everyone at the end. So mm. you've been able to reach the age of 100 and your friends have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic. They just did. And they've shown it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Oh, God. <laughs> what I wanted to say. Um, you know, I, I think overall, I just, I, I wanted to be, thought of as kind and fair um, and that I, I created opportunities for a lot of people um, 
I don't know if there's anything like, I don't really remember the things I say all that much. <laughs> you know, oh my goodness. I mean, this, this job is, is pretty solitary a lot of the time. And, uh, but like Radiotopia is, is this collective of podcasts that I helped found. I, I was, uh, I never set it up as a company. I always set it up that everyone owned their own work and we just like work collectively. And sometimes I think about that choice a lot and think about how much we sort of generated together um, rather than created into sort of a company that was sort of a VC backed and became, you know, like a, a you know, had where ownership was taken away. And uh, I think, I think I want to be remembered to someone who empowered people to own their own work, to like follow, to make the thing that they want to make and to, to have different visions of success um, where you served yourself and not a boss. Um, and then in the end, it was just fair and kind. And that's really kind of it. And I hope, I hope my kids think of me as a good father. I think that's another one that's like a huge thing for me. <laughs> And that's uh, that's kind of all I can really think of. Oh, I love it, man. It's uh, got me thinking. <laughs> I love the I love the choice aspect because that's really my thing too. Yeah. Is sharing that you do have a choice in life. You've been given an amazing gift. T totally, and that and like, make sure you're measuring your success for you and not against someone else. Like, make sure you're on. Like, don't just climb a ladder. Climb the right ladder, I think, is really important. The other thing, the other thing, like, my main piece of advice that I tell people when they ask me about things, and this is sort of outside of the scope of it, but I, I tell this people a lot, so maybe this would be in the movie of 100 years, is um, I remember when I was, I was learning to play guitar, and I was, I was 19, and I felt old to play guitar. It was just hard to think about today, but I felt too old to learn. <laughs> and uh, I had a guitar teacher who said to me, you know, if you work really hard and practice, you know how old you'll be when you're like a master of the guitar that you, the way you want to be? And I said, no. And he said, well, the same age you'll be if you don't. <laughs> and so you're never too late to do anything. And, and so I really believe in that of just like working to make your life the way you want it because no one's going to provide it for you. You want to make it, you go do it yourself. Exactly. And, and you're more, if, if you have people that believe in you along the way, fantastic. But first, yeah, for sure. you're going to believe in you. You do need them. Like you can't like just eschew all people and, and just defiantly go out there in the world. Like you need to build a community. It's important. You know, like I don't want, I, I never want my independence and my independent spirit to imply to people that I, have a disdain for working with people or, or, or even, you know, like, or even corporate structures or whatever, you know, like if you can make that work for you and you can create good things, then great. Like I have no judgment about that. I just, this was the bat I had to take from me. So. I've really enjoyed this conversation, Roman. Thank you so much you. For, for your time, man. Uh, where can people find you and connect with you and learn more about you? Sure. The, the show, the podcast is called 99% Invisible. It's, you can find it at 99pi.org. The book is called The 99% Invisible City, A Field Guide to the Hidden World of Everyday Design. I'm on Twitter at Roman Mars. You can, you can find me. 
making. You, you got a lot of Twitter followers unnoticed. Yeah, I got a few. <laughs> <laughs> a few. 119,000. That's yeah. more than a few. <laughs> yeah. With the show, I mean, the show, you know, we, the show, you know, we download, you know, it's like six or eight million a month, you know, so we have a big audience. And so we, you know, like it's, uh, so they find me on Twitter and they find like a different side of me on Twitter. I can get pretty, pretty salty on Twitter, but, <laughs> but uh, they, they, each thing serves its its own audience. That's good, man. Well, I'll make sure that's all in the show notes below. But Roman Mars, thank you so much for your time, thank you. your story, and for coming on the Storybox podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guests today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.